Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Hospice News Elevate podcast. I'm Holly Vossel, reporter for Hospice News, and today we're focusing on the challenges that hospice providers face when considering the use of restricted controlled substances. I'll be speaking with Dr. Carl Steinberg, President and CEO of California-based Stone Mountain Medical Associates. He also serves as Medical Director at Carlsbad Hospice by the Sea and Scripps Home Health Services, as well as Chief Medical Officer at Mariner Health Central and Beacon Health. Before we begin, a quick note. Hospice News is able to produce these podcasts thanks to those in the field lending their voice. Let us know if you or others are interested in sharing your thoughts on an episode. If you'd like to sponsor a podcast, send us a note at editor at hospicenews.com. Now let's begin our journey into today's hospice topic. Well, hello, Carl. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. So we've connected a bit in the past on hospice news topics that have sort of discussed the utilization of, you know, different controlled substances. So why don't you just kind of give us a brief walkthrough of your experience in this area and just an overall, you know, window into your world around end-of-life care? Well, sure. Yeah, I guess uh, probably the most significant thing is I've been a hospice medical director uh, for a small uh, small local hospice in Solana Beach, California, that's San Diego County, called Hospice by the Sea, and I've been doing that since 1995. I like mm-hmm. to say uh, before it was fashionable, you know. <laughs> um, so I've taken care of many, many people uh, at the end of their lives uh, through hospice. I'm also a nursing home doctor and nursing home medical director, and uh, so I've taken care of lots of other people. Um, on service with other hospices uh, or some people who die, um, you know, not receiving hospice services. So um, quite a bit of end of life care. It's something that I care deeply about and I, um, I enjoy it um, probably like, like many of our listeners, even though it's not the happiest thing, it's, it's really nice to be able to um, help people have make each day the best it, it can be on that trajectory toward the end of life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I think it's it's a good segue into just kind of jumping into some of the instances of maybe like when these patients would come into consideration of using those um, controlled substances at the end of life. Can you kind of just provide some examples maybe and different types of those substances that are most commonly used in hospice settings? Well, sure. I mean, legal controlled substances like like say opioids and benzodiazepines, I mean, those are used uh, often and fairly liberally in a hospice setting uh, because many of the concerns about kind of long-term consequences like uh, addiction or or what have you uh, become a lot less problematic given both the person's short life expectancy and the primary focus on symptom control, right? So these Mm -hmm. are medications that are extraordinarily helpful for uh, pain, anxiety, things like that. So even though there's more scrutiny on the prescribing of these kinds of medications, especially opioids, uh, and even though that scrutiny has had a chilling effect on overall prescribing, it's kind of less of an issue when we're treating hospice patients. Um, and then, you know, some other drugs like, say, ketamine, which is a, I mean, it's a legitimate Schedule three drug. It's used for 
dissociative anesthesia and so on. And there's actually a nasal form now uh, that's that's been approved for depression. But anyway, we use it we use it off label uh, in an oral form sometimes for depression and pain, uh, even though it might not be a, a first choice. The reason being that it kicks in fast, right? So if somebody's only in the last week or two of life, you really want something that's going to uh, kick in fast and not wait for a traditional antidepressant that might take take a month or something like that. And mm-hmm. you know, if we're if we're talking more broadly about sort of psychedelics, um, a lot of them are not, they're not legal, right? They're still considered right. schedule one controlled substances. Mm-hmm. And so with these, um, you know, they are, it's, it's just a lot more tricky. And even cannabis, uh, which is legal in a lot of states is still federally considered schedule one. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, uh, you know, it makes it difficult sometimes to to prescribe for a variety of reasons or even to to recommend. Um, but again, in people, especially at the end of life, you're not as concerned. I mean, you're willing to probably take more risks for a potential benefit. And of course, it's very individual. It's personal to each each prescriber, each physician. Um, but but in general, as a palliative care doctor. My job is to, you know, help alleviate symptoms and to help concentrate on quality of life. So we often think outside the box uh, to do that. Mm-hmm. I think I've heard um, psychosyllabin added to that list as well from other palliative physicians that we've spoken with um, just over the years. So just to tack yeah, on one. <laughs> yeah, no, psilocybin, definitely, and, and MDMA also. Um, I mean, uh, you know, the research base, it's not, anything like what we have, let's say for opioids that have been around for, you know, centuries, millennia, whatever. Um, but, uh, there are some very solid evidence, for example, like, you know, MDMA for, um, for PTSD, it works, uh, remarkably well in people who have had extremely recalcitrant treatment resistant PTSD and psilocybin for people nearing the end of life, um, has been very helpful in, uh, uh, improving their their attitude and their sort of overall comfort level. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, I mean, psychedelics. I, I'm sure um, some of the listeners probably have their own personal experience with psychedelics. And uh, I mean, I you know this was over 40 years ago, but I've certainly had mine. And you know, they're very life changing, cosmic, you know, transformative uh, experiences. And for somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, who may be despondent at the end of life and looking for meaning and connection, um, these medications can certainly help people achieve that. So uh, I think in the years to come, these are going to probably be a really valuable addition to our armamentarium and and what we can offer people. Right. And I want to dig into some of these like benefits and risks with you in a minute here, but I want to just kind of ask something about, you know, that have you seen anything on that sort of family caregiver side as far as any utilization around assisted therapies when it comes to to like grief or bereavement support? Because I've seen some in other countries, not so much the U.S. Yeah, we hear less about this. I mean, I've, I've heard kind of anecdotally about people who are having pathologic grief reactions, you know, really profound, prolonged grief reactions, uh, turning to these types of alternative therapies for it. And again, uh, 
anecdotally, I've heard that they can be very helpful in, in, mm-hmm. uh, in treating that and helping people get beyond, uh, I, I don't want to say getting beyond grief because, you know, grief is, uh, it is what it is. It, it can take a long time. It doesn't necessarily ever go away, but to help people cope with, with grieving and loss, uh, uh, certainly, uh, this type of, uh, experience that people have where it just seems very meaningful and there's a connection to the universe. And sometimes there would be a connection. They feel a connection to their uh, deceased loved one and that sort of thing. So yeah. Right. And just to sort of help us understand both sides of this coin for patient utilization around these substances, what are some of those, you know, benefits and then also those potential risks of utilization? Yeah. Well, I mean, just uh, for a for a clinician, I think one of the um, biggest hurdles is uh, concern about legal and regulatory consequences. You know, uh, liability mm-hmm. exposure, or you know, that you're gonna your license is gonna get in trouble if you are even recommending these types of therapies, much less uh, helping somebody get get access to them and so on. Um, and I think lack of knowledge and a robust evidence base i mean those are clearly barriers right uh, mm-hmm. and, and i mean for example with cannabis i mean i'm not i'm not a cannabis expert um and uh if people want to use cannabis I'm, it's legal here in california i don't i don't discourage it i mean maybe once in a blue moon i might discourage it because of a particular situation but um i will generally um you know try to get somebody who knows a lot more about you know, the different percentages and, and the, you know, the um, ratios and the, you know, CBD and THC and whatnot. Um, right. Because I just don't know about it. Right. And, and mm-hmm. uh, so then access obviously is, can be a problem. And, you know, this is, can be a whole nother equity issue. I mean, if you've got a few thousand dollars and you can fly to Oregon and, you know, get into one of these psilocybin uh, discovery things, uh, you know that's great, but if you if you don't have that, then um, you you don't have access. Um, and um, you know, finally, knowing exactly what and how much you're getting. I mean, if you're you know eating eating mushrooms or you know taking some ground up powder that somebody gives you, you really don't know exactly what's in it. So those are all um, some of the you know, sort of risks, downsides, hurdles, barriers that. Uh, that are currently, um, you know, active in this, in this arena. Yeah. And I, I think that that's sort of another key point to sort of address is those mix of federal and state laws that around these substances, you know, and how providers sort of work under those current regulations to sort of address those physical, emotional, you know, pain and symptom management for patients at the end of life. What are some ways that you've seen, um, as far as working to address those, navigating those regulations. Well, I mean, I think there's there's some work afoot right now. I, there was just a, a case, uh, a federal court case that I listened in. It listened to the oral oral arguments on uh, about um, you know the DEA reclassifying psilocybin uh, to mm-hmm. uh, instead of being Schedule One that it could be recognized as having some legitimate medical uses. And uh, I believe that case went uh, in favor of the, uh, um, I mean, it went against the DEA essentially, if I 
I understand that correctly. So maybe it will be, uh, um, you know, available in settings that are not just research settings or that are essentially uh, still considered illegal by by federal standards, at least. And there are some mm-hmm. some places where psilocybin specifically uh, has been uh, uh, legalized, essentially. Uh, I, I think in Oregon is one of them. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a hard uh, hard thing to navigate uh, if you are a, a clinician who wants to facilitate um, your patient being able to uh, to access these types of therapies um, because um, certainly for people who are really risk adverse, I wouldn't think they'd want to even put it in the chart that they are even contemplating it or discussing these things mm-hmm. with patients because. Uh, you never know uh, with the sort of climate with some of the uh, licensing agencies and, and regulatory and uh, you, you just don't know uh, what they're going to, you know, what kind of crazy uh, sanctions might be put on you if you even if you even mention that. Yeah. What kind of flags or you'll, you'll throw up um, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. So that's sort of the, the hurdle on the provider side of things are those regulations and, and um, I'm hearing some other trains of thought around like research and education, just, you know, more research around the impacts of these substances and then education on the provider side, just learning, you know, ways that they can be utilized. (laughs) So as far as those hurdles on the patient side and family side, you know, what are some ways to kind of cross all these barriers and and just make sure that you're addressing that quality piece at the end of the day. Yeah, that's really a hard question. I, I mean, um, <laughs> because again, it's kind of the wild, wild west. I mean, if you're talking about getting ketamine, okay, you know, it's a prescription, it comes mm-hmm. in, a, in a vial, you know how much you're getting and that sort of thing. But with psilocybin, uh, if you're not, if you don't have access to a research lab or a lot of money, you may not know how much you're getting. And, you know, there's all this, you know, sort of micro dosing uh, versus sort of moderate dose. And then there's the, you know, the really high dose and that sort of thing. So I'm not sure what I would tell patients and their families other than, you know, do research and try to find out uh, where you can, uh, where you might be able to find something that's that's reliable. And the other thing Mm -hmm. is, you know, these psychedelic experiences are very intense experiences. And so, in the research labs, it's not like they just, you know, here, chew these mushrooms and go out and play in the woods. It's, you know, here, you're going to be here in this nice, dark, warm room and, you know, with comforting presence nearby and, you know, people who've been trained to sort of guide you through these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so uh, I think that's, that's advisable. Again, mm-hmm. that's kind of resource intensive, but um, I think, you know, if you're somebody who's dying, and you are not okay with God, or you know you've got all this existential distress and regret. Um, it can be of just immense value. I mean, almost mm-hmm. immeasurable value to be able to have an experience that will pull you out of that and, and make right. your last days feel kind of content. Um, but then, but you just there's no guarantee that you're going to have that, right? So it's uh, right. Uh, we need a lot more, a lot more research and so on. But in the meantime. I I mean, you cannot in any way judge people or blame people for wanting uh, to to pursue these things, and you can't you can't blame palliative care clinicians 
or wanting to help their patients uh, be able to have mm-hmm. these experiences. Yeah. I mean, I've read some some studies and heard, as you've mentioned, anecdotally, some of the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapies and those therapies around cannabis too, where patients have, you know, use, as you mentioned, used that resource intensiveness of other providers that can kind of help navigate that, have those in therapeutic sessions that's, or doses where it's guided. So there's a lot of these sort of ways to address these, as you're mentioning, and uh, just some that I've seen as well um, or heard from other providers too in this space. So I think yeah. that that kind of brings me to that next question is like, you know, why are we talking about this? Why does it matter? And why is it an important topic to sort of address in today's hospice landscape? And, you know, what do some of the trends taking place in this utilization around substances mean um, for tomorrow, you know, that future of end-of-life care? Yeah, well, I, I think uh, we have seen um, things, uh, you know, psychedelics back in the 60s got a very bad name and uh, they were, um, you know, there had been some initial sort of promising research, but it all got shut down um, and there was really a backlash and it's taken so long for us to get back to a point where, uh, you know, these potentially really useful types of medications are really being considered seriously. And so, you know, I'd say the last 10 years or so, we've seen more and more uh, promising studies. Uh, So I I think as time goes by, there will be uh, more availability, I I believe, and more research that can help guide us as far as, you know, how much to give, how to do it, and that that sort of thing. I really Mm -hmm. think we need to... um, uh, you know, if we're working in this arena, one of our patients wants to participate in this. Uh, the first and most important thing is to maintain our humility, know our limitations, um, admit our lack of knowledge, um, and uh, you know that's I, I think the key is you know you, you, we don't want to be selling our patients or their families some bill of goods that we don't really know about. You know, we want to tell mm-hmm. them that there's there's risks, there's benefits. Um, and I would never push a patient to use these types of therapies, um, although I believe they can be extraordinarily useful for some people, you know, those people that are dealing with those existential issues, spiritual issues, and kind of looking for meaning and connection, you know, as their life comes to a close. Uh, and so I, for me, you know, there's experts out there that know a lot more about this than I do. And like for cannabis, uh, there's Benjamin Kaplan with a C. Uh, he's the uh, founder of what's called the CED Clinic. It's out of Massachusetts. And uh, he just published a book called The Doctor Approved Cannabis Handbook. And, you know, that's got a lot of information in it that I'm not, you know, I don't know it, but he's had years of, uh, you know, uh, looking into this. So, and, you know, Michael Fratkin, I don't know, you know, Dr. Fratkin, uh, who used to have resolution care up in Northern California, he now has this fire and water consulting and uh, you know, I, I look to experts when I have questions about these things. The uh, American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, I, I'm not sure it's a sanctioned group, but that's how I got uh, plugged into this uh, Google group uh, about palliative care psychedelic therapy, uh, where people post. And, you know, it's, it's um, again, a lot of it's not research, but it's uh, it's people's real experiences. And that's that's super valuable. Right. Just the different resources to tap into. Yeah, because you, you can't just do a, you know, you can't go to Amazon to, to, to buy the psilocybin and you can't just go to, 
you know, uh, Google Scholar to find, uh, you know, doses and things like that. So uh, it's, again, still kind of like the wild, wild west. Well, thank you so much, Carl. It's been a pleasure to have you with us today. It's, thank you for having me, and thanks for discussing what I think is going to be an increasingly exciting and important topic. Well, that wraps up this Elevate podcast. This is Holly Bossel, reporter for Hospice News, a WTWH media company. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more episodes. Take care for now. Mm-hmm.